is the Shelbourne East Center Podcast. This is Dr. Benner, and I'm here with Scott Bauman for today's episode and the last installment in our patellofemoral instability series that we've had over the last several weeks. Today, we're going to talk about the outcomes from patellofemoral instability surgery and from patellofemoral instability classification, which we talked about earlier uh, in earlier episodes in this series. Last week, we talked about patella instability rehabilitation. Bill Clausen from my off- our office, one of our physical therapists, was on the show talking about uh, rehabilitation, uh, both non-surgical and post-surgical uh, for patients with patella dislocation. So if you missed out on that and uh, you're a surgeon interested in how to rehab these patients or a therapist want to know how to handle these patients, make sure to tune into that episode, go back and grab it. Uh, Bill did a really nice job of going through our clinic's protocols as it relates to rehabilitation. And knowing the history of patellofemoral instability and the rehab of what Bill went over, we do have a good episode planned for tonight. We're going to be going over all the outcomes from the surgeries that we've covered through the previous episodes, things like the medial implication lateral release, the triot, and the distalization. And, and we're going to go through some historical data, go over some papers that we've put out in the past regarding the results of these three, as well as some data that we had recently pulled to look at some of the outcomes from these three as well. So uh, to kick this off, if we go back to the original, one of the first episodes we did on this, this multiple part series, we talked about the class classification system and, and what we looked at in, in terms of initial evaluation. And we have a, a project that we've recently completed where we looked at the classification and looked at the results of that. And, and Dr. Benner was an author on this paper along with a medical student, Jacob Bailey. And uh, so first, we want to kick it off with that paper specifically. Can you go through, Dr. Benner, a little bit about what the methods were of that project as well as what the results were? Yeah, so that project was really geared around, can we come up with a patellofemoral instability classification system with different types of anatomic or asymmetric features that would help to guide treatment. And we really did it for a couple of reasons. One was to to facilitate communication between practitioners if you're uh, discussing uh, patients uh, that that have patellofemoral instability. The second was to help us guide research to be able to classify these patients and categorize these patients to talk about what kind of surgery is best for each one. And then the last one, of course, is to guide treatment. So surgeons can take a look at the patient's x-rays, put them into a classification system that says type one probably needs this type of operation, type two, this type of operation, type four is this one or that one. So uh, to give people some direction when it comes to to putting these together. Uh, The methods for this study was we queried our internal database for all patients who had had surgery, uh, unilateral surgical treatment for patella instability or dislocation at our office between February 2003 and May of 2019. And then we looked through our PAC system system at uh, at a set of x-rays for each patient and then put them into their specific uh, radiographic classification type. We then, in order to put this to the test of reliability, I rated all the pa- or I'd put the patients uh, all into their specific types myself. And then we had a medical student, Jacob Bailey who I taught about this classification system, and then he went through and did them himself as well. And then we looked at inter-rater and intra-rater reliability for the classification system. The x-ray views that we used were patella height as evaluated on a 60-degree lateral view. We looked at merchant's views to assess whether or not there was symmetry or any predisposing anatomy on both of those and then put them into in the classifications. And just for a review, type 1 instability are patients that had a normal patella height normal centered patella and symmetric congruence on the merchant's view. So side to side, they look the same and they didn't have any predisposing anatomy. Those type two patients then would be the patients who had asymmetry on their merchant's view. So they had torn medial soft tissues, 
uh, compared to the opposite side that led to a lateral displacement of the patella uh, compared to the uh, intact normal side, and that the normal side did not have patella alta and did not have lateral tilt or subluxation. So there was no predisposing anatomy, but there was side-to-side difference and side-to-side asymmetry. Types three and four were the people who had predisposing anatomy. So these people either had patella alta or a lateral displaced patella on their imaging or both. And we really looked at the normal side that had not had a dislocation in order to make that diagnosis of predisposing anatomy. So the people in type three were people who had predisposing anatomy, but symmetry on their merchant's view. So if you looked at the merchant's view, they both looked the same, but they either had patella alta or a lateral line patella or both. And then type four is the patients who had a combined instability pattern where they had predisposing anatomy, and they also had asymmetry on the merchant's view, indicating that they had torn medial soft tissues in addition to their predisposing anatomy. So those are the four groups that we really went with. And uh, Jacob and I looked at all of our uh, at all of our patients in this time period and uh, put them into the classification system to try to show which is the most common that we see and to make sure it was reliable. We then looked a little bit further down the road and thought, what are these what are each of these types probably paired with from a surgical perspective? And did the surgical type uh, or the radiographic type that we put them in fit with the ultimate surgical treatment that they had to see how predictive the classification system was of the surgery that they ultimately ended up needing? So you mentioned after you classified these, there you put them into groups where you would have an expected surgery and an unexpected surgery based on that type. Can you talk a little bit about that and what would fall into each category? Yeah, so for the first two, these are both uh, groups that don't have predisposing anatomy. So these are people that you look at that lateral view, they do not have patella alta. You look at that merchant's view at the normal patella, and the normal patella is uh, well-centered within the trochlea. So they don't have any predisposing anatomy. The type ones, they also have side-to-side symmetry on the merchant's view. And so basically, these patients have normal x-rays. And if they if they have normal x-rays and they have signs and symptoms uh, or uh, MRI findings that are consistent with a patella dislocation, that's where we'd put them into the type one group. Uh, if they have a torn medial retinaculum on their MRI scan then we, and a bone bruise pattern consistent with a patella dislocation, but they have normal x-rays, then we can put them into that type one group. And in that patient group, the problem is that the medial retinaculum is torn off and healed in a lengthened position or not healed at all. Uh, and then in the type two group, those are people that have no predisposing anatomy, just like type one, uh, but they have side-to-side asymmetry. So you look at the lateral view, it looks normal. Normal. You look at the uninjured knee and it looks normal on the merchant's view, but you look at the side-to-side comparison on the merchant's view and the involved knee uh, is laterally displaced and tilted compared to the normal side. Uh, and really in both of these groups, a proximal soft tissue problem is really at play in both of them. So the expected surgical procedure would be a soft tissue proximal procedure, a medial imbrication, lateral release in our hands. Once we get to the types three and four, now we're talking about predisposing anatomy with or without uh, side-to-side asymmetry. The type threes predisposing anatomy with no asymmetry on the merchant. The type fours, predisposing anatomy with asymmetry on the merchant's view. And in these patients, we need to, if we're 
the expected procedures would be that we would go ahead with a tibial tubercle osteotomy, some sort of distal procedure to realign uh, the the tibial tubercle medially or distally or both, uh, depending on what their uh, what their radiographs look like. Some of those patients may end up having just an isolated soft tissue procedure, uh, but that would be in the unexpected category because that's not really doing anything about their predisposing anatomy. As we'll talk about a little bit later, though, that uh, some of those patients. Um, didn't necessarily have the expected procedure because they were skeletally immature. It was a first-time dislocation, something like that. So uh, that's how we looked at the expected and unexpected procedures, that the type 1s and 2s, uh, we expected a, media, a medial imbrication lateral release soft tissue uh, procedure. And for types 3s and 4s, we expected a distal procedure, a tibial tubercle osteotomy, uh, with or without soft tissue procedures, depending on if there was asymmetry. So with those types and expected surgeries and unexpected surgeries, what were the overall results you found with this paper? So we ended up uh, over that several year period with 290 patients who met our criteria that they had surgery for a patellofemoral dislocation. And we broke them up into the four types. Uh, the most common types were the type twos and the type fours. So the people that had side-to-side -side asymmetry, but no predisposing anatomy and people that had side-to-side -side asymmetry with predisposing anatomy, types two and four. The type ones that it would only show up on an MRI scan, but they had normal x-rays was 12% of the group. The type two, where there was a side-to-side -side asymmetry on the merchant's view, but normal anatomy otherwise, that was, that was about 33% of the group. Type three was where they had predisposing anatomy with no asymmetry on their merchant's view, and that was only 8% of the group. And type fours, where they had predisposing anatomy and asymmetry on the uh, merchant's views, that was 48% of the group. So the majority of patients, you know, the types twos and fours, that made up about 81% of our group had asymmetric merchant's views. Uh, and of those, 48% were the type fours that had predisposing anatomy, 33% were the type twos that did not. Uh, when we looked at the reliability, both inter-rater and intra-rater reliability, it was very good on both sides. The uh, correlation coefficient for inter-rater reliability was 0.996, a very high correlation, and intra-rater, so this is where we rated a specific set of x-rays two different times to see if we had uh, agreement amongst ourselves. So I compared myself to myself uh, in two different looks at these x-rays, and it was 0.943 was the correlation coefficient. So very good inter-rater and intra-relator reliability. When we looked at the ability of the type to predict surgical type that they had, for the type 1s, of the 35 patients that were type 1 patella dislocations, 32 of those patients had a medial imbrication lateral release. So 91%, it did accurately predict what kind of surgery the patient had with three out of 35 times the patient ended up having some sort of bony procedure that was not necessarily expected. In the type two group, 82 out of 95 had a medial imbrication lateral release. So 86% accuracy in the type twos at predicting the expected surgery. In the type two, in the type threes, it was kind of all over the place. These are patients that have predisposing anatomy, but do not have asymmetry side to side on their merchant's views. So of those 22 patients, nine of 22 had just an isolated soft tissue procedure. Two out of 22 had just an isolated medialization of the tubercle. 
six out of 22 had a distalization only, and then five out of 22 had a, had distalization and medialization both. So that was kind of all over the map. And the same was true of the type fours, that the majority of those patients did have a tibial tubercle osteotomy, but 39 out of 138 uh, had just an isolated soft tissue procedure. So it was pretty good at predicting the surgical type in the types ones and twos. And there's a lot more nuance in the type threes and fours, as I spoke about before. Some of these patients with predisposing anatomy, if they have a first-time dislocation and maybe they have an upcoming season, they don't have time to tolerate a tibial tubercle osteotomy, may still go ahead and have a smaller procedure like an imbrication release, uh, even though that may not totally take care of their problem and uh, take care of their predisposing anatomy. So uh, the the take-home point from that, the type ones and twos, almost all of those patients correctly were uh, predicted a medial imbrication lateral release. The people had predisposing anatomy in types three and four, it was a little more difficult to predict. And those patients had a lot of different types of procedures depending on their specific nuance radiographic findings. Well, excellent. Well, thanks for sharing that information. I, I really like that paper because, you know, not only as a way to end this podcast series, but just overall as a good way to see what the the percentage or the distribution of our patients are and, and what the expected surgery may be. And and I hope it helps the listeners of this multiple part series because we have talked about a lot of these uh, different type of surgeries, and I think it's a, a good paper to put those numbers to it. And now we want to move to the results of some of these surgeries. And, and the first one we want to get to is that soft tissue realignment, the, the medial imbrication lateral release. This was a paper that was done by Dr. Shelbourne, Dr. Urch, and Tinker Gray back in 2012 in the Journal of Knee Surgery. It was titled Results of Medial Retinacular Imbrication in Patients with Unilateral Patellar Dislocation. And what they did for this study was looked at a total of 42 patients, and the inclusion criteria for this one was suffering a traumatic unilateral patellar dislocation, did not have a J sign, so we're not talking about the patellar alta patients, and they did have asymmetry on the merchant view on the radiograph with a normal opposite side. So I uh, wanted the after what Dr. Benner was saying, the surgery type that these patients would fall into would be that medial imbrication lateral release. And they wanted to look at intermediate to long-term follow-up. And the the average time for follow-up on this patient cohort was 31.7 months. And then from there, there's a few things that, that they wanted to look at. They wanted to look at congruence angle, so the post-operative as well as the preoperative angle to see what type of correction was made with the medial imbrication lateral release, as well as how that compared to the non-involved side. They also compared the linear displacement to, again, see what type of correction was made with the surgery, and then some some objective measures of strength as well as subjective measures of IKDC. So after setting up that methodology, Dr. Benner, can you go through the results of what this study showed? Yeah, so we ended up with a total of 38 patients that uh, had completed follow-up evaluations at a mean of 31.7 months postoperatively. So uh, two and a half to three years postoperatively, these patients were seen. Uh, their congruence angle went from a preoperative value of 19.7 degrees to a postoperative value of 5.4, and that was a statistically significant improvement. Uh, and then when the, that 5.4 degrees post-op was compared to the opposite side, the opposite knee measured 4.1 on average, and that was not statistically significantly different. So it did reduce the congruence angle and it did get it to where it wasn't statistically different from the opposite side. The same happened with the linear, linear displacement measurement. The mean linear displacement preoperatively was six millimeters and that improved to 1.6 millimeters postoperatively. And then if you compared that 1.6 side-to-side -side difference to the non-involved knee, it was only 1.4 millimeters, uh, so not statistically significant there. So it did the job of putting the patella back into the trochlea and uh, achieving congruence. Um, 
33 of those 38 patients, so 87% returned to their pre-injury activity level, including playing their desired sport, which I thought was really good. Um, three patients had a recurrence of patella dislocation after surgery, all while playing sports. And the rest of the group was then able to get back to sports and did not have any subsequent instability episodes. So the conclusion of this paper was basically that isolated proximal medial imbrication lateral release of the retinacular structures was enough to achieve congruence, allow a return to sport, and a low redislocation rate. So before we move on to this next paper, I want to talk about one thing, and, that, and that's the congruence angle. I know we haven't really talked a lot about it uh, up until this point, and now we're talking about some of the numbers, and we naturally get into that. Are you looking at this from a surgical planning standpoint on what the congruence angle is preoperatively and what you're trying to attain postoperatively? I don't. And, and and I think the reason is because the medial imbrication lateral release is a pretty forgiving operation in that the patient's anatomy, if we think it's normal, should drive the patella where it's supposed to go uh, if we just reestablish that connection of the medial soft tissues. So when I do an imbrication, I don't necessarily um, I don't necessarily measure exactly how far I imbricate it. Uh, I make sure that the lateral retinaculum is released from the vastus lateralis down past the inferior pole of the patella, sometimes all the way down to the joint line, uh, so it can be pulled medially. And then I do my imbrication pretty much the same way every time. And the way to keep the patient from being over-constrained is to bend the knee. And if we can bend the knee, and then that repair will be able to stretch and give in order to find the center. Eventually, the patient's normal anatomy is going to drive it back to the, where its anatomy wants to, uh, which we know in this particular group should be the center of the trochlea because they don't have predisposing anatomy. So uh, I think that's an important point. Reestablish the connection of the medial retinaculum, uh, maybe even if it over-tightens it a little bit, but make sure you bend the knee so it doesn't stay there and it's able to find its home in the middle of the trochlea. It's nice to see that what we're working on from a goal perspective really shows itself in one of these outcomes of the congruence angle being normal compared to the opposite side. Moving on to the next paper, this one's looking at the results in a similar fashion, but looking at the triots. So the use of a modified Elmsley triot procedure to improve abnormal patellar congruence angle. This one was from 1994 in the American Journal of Sports Medicine by Dr. Shelbourne, Dr. Porter, and Dr. Razi. This one was done in a similar fashion. We're taking patients that were having a modified Elmsley triot or the triot procedure and looking at very similar parameters, uh, similar number of patients actually as well. There was 40 patients and looking at 45 surgeries and the parameters that they were looking at at the time were redislocation rates, uh, patellofemoral instability postoperatively, similar congruence angles compared to the opposite side as well as the pre-op number, and then seeing if there was any type of correlation between the postoperative congruence angle and the incidence of patellofemoral instability after surgery. So knowing that those were the, the methods of this one, Dr. Benner, can you, in a similar fashion, go over the results of this paper? Now, this is a study that was in American Journal of Sports Medicine all the way back in 1994, so quite an older study than the, than the other ones that we've been discussing. Um, these patients were a combination of 34 patients who had surgery due to patellofemoral instability and then 11 more patients who had surgery for patellofemoral pain and malalignment. Uh, amongst those 34 patients who had surgery for instability, nine of the 34 reported some residual instability. And of those patients, when they were separated out between those who had postoperative instability and those that didn't, there was a positive correlation with congruence angle. So the people that had better congruence angle uh, reduction had a decreased incidence of patellofemoral instability. The post-op congruence angle improved from a pre-op value of 21 degrees to a post-op congruence angle of 3.4 degrees. 
uh, and none of those patients had post-op loss of fixation or problems with bony union. So the, the osteotomy healed, the congruence angle improved. There was a small group of patients that had a decent group of patients that had some residual instability, but no patient had a redislocation after surgery. It was just a smaller degree of subluxation of instability and the better congruence angle correction improved that. Uh, of the patients that we did this to, we did put some hardware on the anterior tibial tubercle and about 40% of patients had some tenderness over the knee with kneeling and 15% of them required a hardware removal. So there were some post-operative, uh, was some post-operative discomfort with kneeling and uh, a few patients needed to have their, their plate and screws taken out, but, but the majority of patients were able to keep it in. So, Scott, as we talked about, those are a couple of our older studies that talked about triots, uh, the tibial tubercle dis uh, medializations uh, with osteotomy, and then the medial imbrication lateral release proximal soft tissue realignment surgeries. You did some work to look up our more recent results about the different types and some comparing and contrasting of those different surgical types. So, tell me a little bit about what you found from our more recent data. Sure. So after pulling the data, uh, in total, there were 741 patients that had a patella realignment type surgery, and that was broken down into to four categories that I did. So distalization only, 43 of them, medial vacation, lateral release, 247, triot with distalization, 99, and then a triot only at 352. Average age for this cohort was 21.5 years of age. Interesting thing on this, this cohort as a whole was that the reoperation rate for another patellofemoral surgery was 2.9%, so pretty low. Of those 741, nearly 3% had a reoperation rate, and interestingly, all of them were medial implication lateral release. Now, moving on to some of these results, of these 741 patients that had a patella realignment surgery, we looked at the minimum one-year Kajala score, which the Kajala is going to be more of your patellofemoral specific with those questions pertaining more to the patellofemoral joint. And what we did was look at the the average score, and the average score ended up being an 86 at a minimum one year for this patient population. And doing some statistics on here, with these four groups of distalization only, medial implication, triot with distalization, and triot only, we did find a statistically significantly uh, different average score when we were looking at the triots compared to the medial implication lateral release, with the medial implication lateral release having the highest score at an average of 89.8 compared to the triots, which was showing to be 83.9. So it's one of those instances where I think it's statistically significantly different. However, you can question the clinical significance and is that six-point change clinically significant or not. Yeah, you have to keep in mind in that group, in those groups also, that the people who have medial invocation lateral releases are more likely these type one and type two people that don't have predisposing anatomy. The people that have the osteotomies are people that do have predisposing anatomy. So a bigger risk of redislocation seems to be pretty obvious that it would come with people who had their predisposing anatomy and that people who don't would be more likely to avoid redislocation. So while I think it may be uh, potential, you could look at those data and feel like, you know what, maybe I should just do imbrication releases on people because it leads to better scores and lower redislocation rates. Those people don't have quite as involved of a problem, not as difficult of a surgery. Uh, so that definitely bears keeping in mind. Yeah, it's a perfect segue into this next uh, analysis that we looked at. So one of the questions of the Kajala specifically asks about kneecap movements. And in the answers, it talks about actual dislocations. So with this one, there's actually five options for answers. Uh, and it's there's a gradation of, of scoring. But uh, to make uh, matters easy here, you get the highest score for having no dislocations or no patella movements, and then it goes down from there with occasional subluxations or patella movements with sports, 
occasional subluxations or, or movements with ADLs, and then you get into dislocation. So the, the, the fourth out of the fifth possible answers would be at least one dislocation. And then the, the worst answer you could possibly give on this question is more than two dislocations. So two of those five actually are, are some degree of dislocation postoperatively. And Dr. Benner, to your point, we looked at these in comparison of these four groups and found that the group with the with the highest distribution of answering that as having a dis, more than two dislocations was the group that had a dislocation. So what you would uh, what you would categorize as the the more severe preoperative diagnosis or the most invasive type of surgery with the dislocation is going to lead to more dislocations. There was a rate of more than two dislocations at 8.3% for the dislocation group. In comparison to the medial implication lateral release group, 0.8% of patients had more than two dislocations. Triot with dislocations was at 1.7%, and triot only was at 1.1%. Now we further uh, split these up and looked at redislocations, yes or no. So these were answers in the in the fourth or fifth option of that Kujala specific kneecap question, where it was uh, asking about patients having at least one dislocation or more than two dislocations. So if they answered either of those, we designated them as having a uh, post-operative redislocation, yes or no. And the percentages came out uh, similar to the more than two, two dislocations, but the dislocation only still had one of the higher rates, however, not the highest because the triot with dislocation, so the more invasive surgery had the higher number at 10.2%. Dislocation only was at 8.3%. Triot only was 2.8%, and the lowest redislocation rate post-operatively would, would be what you would think with the medial implication lateral release. Yeah, so I would say, you know, earlier we talked in this series about how the different classifications were different types, not gradations of the same type. Um, and, and while I still believe that to be the case, it's interesting when you look at the redislocation rates, it sure looks like they're gradations of severity. Um, and, 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 I, and I think I think they are gradations of severity, but I but I think it's because they are just totally different entities. And you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm making too much of the analysis on here, but uh, I think it's important just to realize that these are just totally different groups. Um, and, and they even though they do have different levels of severity, and, and I think it is interesting that as we move from the simpler proximal all soft tissue procedures to adding the distalization or the medialization by themselves, or then adding both, uh, that it does increase the redislocation rates. I would say though, I think as a, as a whole, uh, the, the redislocation rates are pretty low, and the uh, amount of patients who have some degree of residual instability um, is not bad. So I, I still think um, the classification system and the treatment algorithm holds up to the to the stress of getting back to activity uh, with low re, with low rates of uh, recurrent instability and dislocation. So that about wraps up this episode, looking at the outcomes of patellofemoral instability. And you know, my final thoughts are, are similar to what Bill was talking about with the rehab. And, and naturally, I'm going to have more of a rehab spin on it. But when you when, when we're seeing these postoperatively, you talk about gradations and, and types, and, and it really is truly the, the types when it comes to patellofemoral instability rehab. You know, the timing is going to be one of the biggest things. When, when patients are coming in with just a medial implication lateral release, as we see from the outcomes, their subjective scores are generally pretty good. Their redislocation rates are, are nearly zero. Obviously, they're not zero, but but they're pretty close to zero. And, and those patients really get back pretty fast, getting those patients back 
after about uh, two months or so getting them back to their sport. And then as you go into the to the more severe or, or, or invasive types of surgery, getting more to the triads, they do take a little bit longer, maybe four to six months to get back to sport. And you start seeing a little bit higher redislocation rates, but the subjective scores are generally still pretty good as well. You're talking that mid 80s on the Kajala score, and then you get to the distalization. That just takes longer from a rehab standpoint where we're we're slowing them down a little bit with their their flexion their strength takes a little bit longer to come back so that return to sport rate is generally that that six plus months with a little bit higher redislocation rate but again uh, the important thing to note with that is even though there's a higher dislocation rate the kajala score and we also looked at some ikdc scores are very similar and similar to that of somebody which is a proximal realignment and from the surgeon's perspective with these patients, I think the main take-home points, one is the classification system to be able to compartmentalize these this patient population that are having the same injury, a patella dislocation, but they're having it for markedly different reasons, and you need to go about each of those surgically in markedly different ways. So I think it's important to have a system of how to compartmentalize these and a system, uh, an armamentarium of surgical tools to be able to deal with them as they pop up. Uh, the second is, as we talked about today, the very nuanced nature of this, both from a radiographic evaluation uh, point of view and also just thinking about the age of the patient, their skeletal maturity, how many dislocations they've had, uh, how how easily they're, it's coming out when they have their next season coming up, what kind of activities they want to get back to. There's a lot of nuance involved in this, so uh, it's important to have a, kind of an algorithmic approach, and hopefully we've been able to put that out there uh, for everyone's benefit. That's it for our five-part series on patellofemoral instability from the Shelbourne Knee Center podcast. This is Dr. Benner. Scott, thanks for looking up that uh, information from our, our research database. That was some interesting stuff, and I, and I think we all learned something about this, and hopefully our, our listeners did as well. Next week, we're going to pivot into a total knee replacement topic and a little bit more into innovation. We have another guest uh, that's going to be joining us, Dr. Jim Ballard from Portland, Oregon, is going to be joining us uh, next week to talk about robotics in total knee arthroplasty. This is a really interesting innovative frontier uh, that uh, surgeons doing joint replacement are uh, kind of starting to look at even more closely than we have in the past. And it's something that I've picked up over the last year and don't think I'm going to be putting down anytime, anytime soon. So um, we'll have Dr. Ballard on and have a great conversation with him about robotics and total knee. As always, if you want to get in contact with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC podcast. Visit our YouTube or Facebook pages at the SKC Podcast or email us at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. And we will see you next week on the episode with Dr. Jim Ballard. Mm-hmm.